1: Hi everyone, welcome back to Storytime with Stephanie. Today I read chapters 2 through 4 of Volume 2, Book 3 of Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. I hope you can grab some tea, cozy up, and enjoy. Chapter 2 – Two Complete Portraits So far in this book, the Thenardiers have been viewed only in profile. The moment has arrived for making the circuit of this couple and considering it under all aspects. Thenardier had just passed his fiftieth birthday. Madame Thenardier was approaching her forties, which is equivalent to fifty in a woman, so that there existed a balance of age between husband and wife. Our readers have possibly preserved some recollection of this Thenaier woman ever since her first appearance. tall, blonde, red, fat, angular, square, enormous, and agile. She belonged, as we have said to the race of those colossal wild women who contort themselves at fairs with paving-stones hanging from their hair. She did everything about the house made the beds did the washing the cooking and everything else Cosette was her only servant a mouse in the service of an elephant everything trembled at the sound of her voice window panes furniture and people her big face dotted with red blotches presented the appearance of a skimmer she had a beard she was an ideal market porter dressed in woman's clothes she swore splendidly she boasted of being able to crack a nut with one blow of her fist Except for the romances which she had read and which made the affected lady peep through the ogress at times in a very queer way, the idea would never have occurred to any anyone to say of her, that is a woman. This Tenadier female was like the product of a wench engrafted on a fishwife. When one heard her speak, one said, that is a gendarme. When one saw her drink, one said, that is a carter. When one saw her handle casette, one said, that is a hangman. One of her teeth projected when her face was in repose. Thenardier was a small, thin, pale, angular, bony, feeble man who had a sickly air and who was wonderfully healthy. His cunning began here. He smiled habitually by way of precaution and was almost polite to everybody, even to the beggar whom he refused half a farthing. He had the glance of a polecat and the bearing of a man of letters. He greatly resembled the portraits of the Abbe de Lille. His coquetry consisted in drinking with the Carters. No one had ever succeeded in rendering him drunk. He smoked a big pipe. "'He wore a blouse and under his blouse an old black coat. "'He made pretensions to literature and to materialism. "'There were certain names which he often pronounced "'to support whatever things he might be saying. "'Voltaire, Raynal, Parney, and singularly enough, St. Augustine. "'He declared that he had a system. "'In addition, he was a great swindler. "'A philosophe, a scientific thief. "'The species does exist.' It will be remembered that he pretended to have served in the army. He was in the habit of relating with exuberance how, being a sergeant in the 6th or the ninth, flight something or other at Waterloo, he had alone and in the presence of a squadron of death-dealing hussars, covered with his body and saved from death in the midst of the grape shot, a general who had been dangerously wounded. Thence arose for his wall the flaring sign, and for his inn the name which it bore in the neighbourhood of the cabaret of the sergeant of Waterloo. He was a liberal, a classic, and a bonapartist. He had subscribed for the Champ de Sales, it was said in the village that he had studied for the priesthood. We believed that he had simply studied in Holland for an innkeeper. This rascal of composite order was, in all probability, some Fleming from Lille in Flanders, a Frenchman in Paris, a Belgian at Brussels, being comfortably astride of both frontiers. As for his prowess at Waterloo, the reader is already acquainted with that. It will be perceived that he exaggerated it a trifle. Ebb and flow, wandering adventure, was the leaven of his existence. A tattered conscience entails a fragmentary life, and apparently, at the stormy epoch of June 18, 1815, belonged to that variety of marauding settlers of which we have spoken, beating about the country, selling to some, stealing from others, and travelling like a family man with wife and children in a rickety cart in the rear of troops on the march, with an instinct for always attaching himself to the victorious army. This campaign ended in having, as he said, some quibbs, he had come to Montfermal and set up an inn there. This quibus, composed of purses and watches, of gold rings and silver crosses, gathered in harvest time and furrows sewn with corpses, did not amount to a large total and did not carry this settler-turned-eating-house-keeper very far. Tenadier had that peculiar rectilinear something about his gestures, which, accompanied by an oath, recalls the barracks and, by a sign of the cross, the seminary. He was a fine talker. He allowed it to be thought that he was an educated man. Nevertheless, the schoolmaster had noticed that he pronounced him properly." He composed the traveler's tariff card in a superior manner, but practiced eyes sometimes spied out orthographical errors in it. Tenadier was cunning, greeting, slothful, and clever. He did not disdain his servants, which caused his wife to dispense with them. This giantess was jealous. It seemed to her that that thin and yellow little man must be an object coveted by all. Tenadier, who was, above all, an astute and well-balanced man, was a scamp of a temperate sort. This is the worst species. Hypocrisy enters into it. It is not that Tenadier was not on occasion capable of wrath to quite the same degree as his wife. But this was very rare, and at such times, since he was enraged with the human race in general as he bore within him a deep furnace of hatred, and since he was one of those people who are continually avenging their wrongs, who accuse everything that passes before them of everything which has befallen them, and who are always ready to cast upon the first person who comes to hand as a legitimate grievance, the sum total of the deceptions, the bankruptcies, and the calamities of their lives, when all this leaven was stirred up in him and boiled forth from his mouth and eyes, he was terrible. Woe to the person who came under his wrath at such a time. In addition to his other qualities, Tenadier was attentive and penetrating, silent or talkative, according to circumstances, and always highly intelligent. He had something of the look of sailors who are accustomed to screw up their eyes to gaze through marine glasses. Tenadier was a statesman. Every newcomer who entered the tavern said, on catching sight of Madame Tenadier, "'There is the master of the house.' A mistake. She was not even the mistress. The husband was both master and mistress. She worked, he created. He directed everything by a sort of invisible and constant magnetic action. A word was sufficient for him, sometimes a sign. The mastodon obeyed. Tenadier was a sort of special and sovereign being in Madame Tenadier's eyes, though she did not thoroughly realize it. She was possessed of virtues after her own kind. If she had ever had a disagreement as to any detail with Monsieur Tenardier, which was an inadmissible hypothesis, by the way, she would not have blamed her husband in public on any subject whatever. She would never have committed before strangers that mistake so often committed by women, and which is called, in parliamentary language, exposing the crown. Although their concord had only evil as its result, there was contemplation in Madame Tenardier's submission to her husband, that mountain of noise and a flesh moved under the little finger of that frail despot. Viewed on its dwarfed and grotesque side, this was that grand and universal thing, the adoration of mind by matter, for certain ugly features have a cause in the very depths of eternal beauty. There was an unknown quantity about Tanadier; hence the absolute empire of the man over that woman. At certain moments she beheld him like a lighted candle, at others she felt him like a claw. This woman was a formidable creature who loved no one except her children, and who did not fear anyone except her husband." She was a mother because she was mammiferous, but her maternity stopped short with her daughters and, as we shall see, did not extend to boys. The man had but one thought, how to enrich himself.' He did not succeed in this. A theatre worthy of this great talent was lacking. Tenadier was ruining himself at Montfermeil. if ruin is possible to zero. In Switzerland, or in the Pyrenees, this penniless scamp would have become a millionaire, but an innkeeper must browse where fate has hitched him. It will be understood that the word innkeeper is here employed in restricted sense, and does not extend to an entire class. In this same year, 1823, Tenadier was burdened with about 1,500 francs worth of petty debts, and this rendered him anxious. Whatever may have been the obstinate injustice of destiny in this case, Thenardier was one of those men who understand best, with the most profundity and in the most modern fashion, that thing which is a virtue among barbarous people and an object of merchandise among civilized peoples hospitality. Besides, he was an admirable poacher and quoted for his skill in shooting. He had a certain cold and tranquil laugh which was particularly dangerous. His theories as a landlord sometimes burst forth in lightning flashes. He had professional aphorisms which he inserted into his wife's mind. The duty of the innkeeper, he said to her one day violently and in a low voice, is to sell to the first comer stews, repose, light, fire, dirty sheets, a servant, lice and a smile, to stop passers by, to empty small purses, and to honestly lighten heavy ones, to shelter travelling families respectfully, to shave the man, to pluck the woman, to pick the child clean, to quote the window open, the window shut, the chimney corner, the armchair, the chair, the ottoman, the stool, the feather bed, the mattress and the truss of straw, to know how much the shadow uses up the mirror and to put a price on it, and by five hundred thousand devils to make the traveller pay for everything, even for the flies which his dog eats. This man and this woman were ruse and rage wedded, a hideous and terrible team. While the husband pondered and combined, Madame Thenardier thought not of absence creditors, took no heed of yesterday nor of tomorrow, and lived in a fit of anger. All in a minute. Such were these two beings. "'Cosette was between them, subjected to their double pressure, "'like a creature who was at the same time being ground up in a mill "'and pulled to pieces with pincers. "'The man and the woman each had a different method. "'Cosette was overwhelmed with blows. "'This was the woman's. "'She went barefooted in winter. "'That was the man's doing. "'Cosette ran upstairs and down, "'washed, swept, rubbed, dusted, ran, fluttered about, "'panted, moved heavy articles, "'and weak as she was, did the coarse work. "'There was no mercy for her, "'a fierce mistress and venomous master.' The Tanadi hostelry was like a spider's web in which Cosette had been caught and where she lay trembling. The ideal of oppression was realized by this sinister household. It was something like the flies serving the spiders. The poor child passively held her peace. What takes place within these souls, when they have but just quitted God, find themselves thus at the very dawn of life, very small and in the midst of men, all naked? Chapter 3. Men Must Have Wine, and Horses Must Have Water Four new travellers had arrived. Cosette was meditating sadly, for although she was only eight years old, she had already suffered so much that she reflected with the lugubrious air of an old woman. Her eye was black in consequence of a blow from Madame Thenardier's fist, which caused the latter to remark from time to time how ugly she is with her fist blow on her eye. Cosette was thinking that it was dark, very dark, that the pitchers and crafts in the chambers of the travellers who had arrived must have been filled and that there was no more water in the cistern. She was somewhat reassured because no one in the Thenardier establishment drank much water. Thirsty people were never lacking there, but their thirst was of the sort which applies to the jug rather than to the pitcher. Anyone who had asked for a glass of water among all those glasses of wine would have appeared a savage to all these men. But there came a moment when the child trembled. Madame Tenardier raised the cover of a stew pan which was boiling on the stove, then seized a glass and briskly approached the cistern. She turned the faucet. The child had raised her head and was following all the woman's movements. A thin stream of water trickled from the faucet and half-filled the glass. "'Well,' said she, "'there is no more water.' "'A momentary silence ensued. "'The child did not breathe. "'Bah!' resumed Madame Thenardier, "'examining the half-filled glass. "'This will be enough.' "'Cosette applied herself to her work once more, "'but for a quarter of an hour "'she felt her heart leaping in her bosom "'like a big snowflake. "'She counted the minutes that passed in this manner "'and wished it were the next morning. "'From time to time, "'one of the drinkers looked into the street and exclaimed, "'It's as black as an oven, "'or one must needs a cat to go about the streets "'without a lantern at this hour.' "'And Cosette trembled.' All at once one of the peddlers who lodged in the hostelry entered and said in a harsh voice, "'My horse has not been watered.' "'Yes, it has,' said Madame Thenardier. "'I tell you that it has not,' retorted the peddler. Cosette had emerged from under the table. "'Oh, yes, sir,' said she. "'The horse has had a drink. He drank out of a bucket, a whole bucketful, and it was I who took the water to him, and I spoke to him. It was not true,' Cosette lied. "'There's a brat as big as my fist who tells lies as big as the house,' exclaimed the peddler." "'I tell you that he has not been watered, you little jade. "'He has a way of blowing when he has had no water, which I know well.' "'Cosette persisted, and added in a voice rendered hoarse with anguish, and which was hardly audible, and he drank heartily. "'Come,' said the peddler, in a rage, "'this won't do at all. "'Let my horse be watered, and let that be the end of it.' "'Cosette crept under the table again. "'In truth, that is fair,' said Madame Thenardier. "'if the beast has not been watered, it must be.' "'Then glancing about her. "'Well, now, where is that other beast?' She bent down and discovered Cosette cowering at the other end of the table, almost under the drinker's feet. "'Are you coming?' shrieked Madame Thenardier. Cosette crawled out of the sort of hole in which she had hidden herself. The Thenardier resumed. "'Mademoiselle, dog-lacked name, go and water that horse.' "'But Madame,' said Cosette feebly, "'there is no water.' The Thenardier threw the street door wide open. "'Well, go and get some, then.' Cosette dropped her head and went for an empty bucket which stood near the chimney corner." This bucket was bigger than she was, and the child could have sat down in it at her ease. The tenardier returned to her stove and tasted what was in the stewpan with a wooden spoon, grumbling the while. "'There's plenty in the spring. There never was such a malicious creature as that. I think I should have done better to strain my onions.' Then she rummaged in a drawer which contained sous, pepper, and shallots. "'See here, Mamselle Toad,' she added. "'On your way back, you will get a big loaf from the baker. Here's a fifteen-sou piece.' Cosette had a little pocket on one side of her apron. She took the coin without saying a word and put it in that pocket. Then she stood motionless, bucket in hand, the open door before her. She seemed to be waiting for someone to come to her rescue. Get along with you, screamed the tenardier. Cosette went out, the door closed behind her. Chapter 4. Entrance on the Scene of a Doll The line of open-air booths starting at the church extended, as the reader will remember, as far as the hostelry of the Tenadiers. These booths were all illuminated because the citizens would soon pass on their way to the midnight mass with candles burning in paper funnels, which as the schoolmaster then seated at the table at the Tenadiers observed produced a magical effect. In compensation, not a star was visible in the sky. The last of these stalls, established precisely opposite the Tenadiers' door, was a toy shop all glittering with tinsel glass and magnificent objects of tin. In the first row, and far forwards, the merchant had placed on a background of white napkins an immense doll, nearly two feet high, who was dressed in a robe of pink crepe with gold wheat ears in her head, which had real hair and enamel eyes. All that day this marvel had been displayed to the wonderment of all passers-by under ten years of age, without a mother being found in Montfermeil sufficiently rich or sufficiently extravagant to give it to her child. Eponine and Azelma had passed hours in contemplating it, and Gazette herself had ventured to cast a glance at it on the sly, it is true. At the moment, when Cosette emerged, bucket in hand, melancholy and overcome as she was, she could not refrain from lifting her eyes to that wonderful doll, towards the lady as she called it. The poor child paused in amazement. She had not yet beheld that doll close to. The whole shop seemed a palace to her. The doll was not a doll, it was a vision. It was joy, splendour, riches, happiness, which appeared in a sort of chimerical halo to that unhappy little being so profoundly engulfed in gloomy and chilly misery.' With the sad and innocent sagacity of childhood, Cosette measured the abyss which separated her from that doll. She said to herself that one must be a queen, or at least a princess, to have a thing like that. She gazed at that beautiful pink dress, that beautiful smooth hair, and she thought, how happy that doll must be. She could not take her eyes from that fantastic stall. The more she looked, the more dazzled she grew. She thought she was gazing at paradise. There were other dolls behind the large one, which seemed to her to be fairies in Genai. The merchant, who was pacing back and forth in front of his shop, produced on her so much the effect of being the Eternal Father. In this adoration, she forgot everything, even the errand with which she was charged. All at once, the Tenadier's coarse voice recalled her to reality. "'What, you silly jade? You have not gone. Wait, I'll give it to you. I want to know what you were doing there. Get along, you little monster!' The Tenadier had cast a glance into the street and had caught sight of Cosette in her ecstasy. Cosette fled, dragging her pail and taking the longest strides of which she was capable. And that will be all for today. I will be back tomorrow with some more of Le Masechable for you. In the meantime, I hope you have an excellent day. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.